Welcome to Please Unmute Yourself, Columbia Business School's student-run podcast, where we dive into the very center of our program to get to know the individuals that make up this amazing community. We will interview fellow classmates, professors, administrators, industry experts, and CBS entrepreneurs to hear about their lives, careers, and perspectives. So, Columbia, please unmute yourself. It's Nicolene. I'm one of the producers here at Please Unmute Yourself. And today we have Michelle with us just to talk about her journey at CBS. So welcome, Michelle. Hi, how are you? So excited to be here and kind of just share my story with you. Yeah. So maybe we can start at the very beginning. Tell us about yourself, like where you grew up and what you were doing before CBS. Yeah. So I'm from this tiny community called McAllen, Texas. I grew up 10 minutes away from the Mexican border. I grew up in a community that's 89% Hispanic, mostly all Mexican. I'm the first person in my family to go to college. I went to school at the University of Texas at Austin, which was like a really big deal because I still remember um, leaving school and my mom was like really disappointed and, and almost very depressed that I was leaving my home without being married, which I think was just an example of like what it was like navigating as a first-gen Mexican-American student. And then after going, after being at the University of Texas at Austin, I think bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wanting to change the world, I uh, moved out to Washington, D.C. I think D.C. was like a seed that was planted as like someone that grew up really understanding how important policy was. My family was undocumented all of my life and immigration reform was such a big part of a lot of the work that we did. We spent a ton of our, our weekends and our free time just advocating for this. Mm -hmm. And I knew that something uh, like folks in DC were making decisions about my community and I wanted to be a part of it. So I moved out there without a job, ready to change the world. And it was really hard. I worked on Capitol Hill for a little while. Then I worked for the US Hispanic Chamber of Commerce where I advocated for Latinx owned businesses and then did fundraising for them. So I raised millions of dollars and really being able to share the value proposition that the Latinx community had for corporate America and being one of the fastest growing communities in the U.S. Uh, And then after that, I think in 2016, this was like a really pivotal year for a lot of folks. And for me, it came the day after Hillary Clinton lost the election, where I'd been at the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce for a couple of years. uh, And it was a really challenging place. There was a lot of misogyny and sexism. And I think seeing it displayed on a national stage was kind of my, my breaking point. So the day after the election, gave my letter of resignation in. And I think it was with this like belief that I could build a better world, that the kind of leadership we had at that point didn't have to be the status quo. So left my gig there and then just like slept <laughs> for the first time in years and then started my business, started a lot strategy which was a business development firm where we raised capital for private sector investments, political campaigns, and national nonprofits. And I think it was a really powerful journey because I got to build a company uh, and a culture that I really believed in. And I think I also got to 
to like test out the thesis that you can be profitable and also good for community at the same time as a business um, and got to grow that into LATAM, spent time in Mexico, Paraguay and, and Peru running uh, political campaigns. And during that time was when I became part of the Tory Birch Foundation Fellows, which is a fellowship for high growth women owned businesses. And I was never going to raise capital because we were extremely capital efficient business. Um, we had a couple of clients and had a, a really nice um, kind of cash flow flow business, but a lot of the folks that I was building relationships with and were part of my, my cohort were women and women of color. And I saw how challenging it was for them to raise capital and especially institutional dollars, which didn't make sense to me, right? Like you have this massive demographic shift happening in the US and you have women um, leading household buying decisions. Like why wouldn't you fund these companies who are started by folks from these communities? So I really saw our, uh, market arbitrage and felt like the only way that I could be a part of the solution was to break into venture. And I think you get into venture in two ways, or I guess three ways. You start a company, you, you take it all the way to an IPO. You either are really well connected through family, which that was not me, or you go to a fancy business school. So I, I felt like Columbia was the best route there. That is quite the story. Like I have so many questions, but I think to go back, what was your experience like working in government and then starting your own company right after that? I had like a similar experience, not necessarily working in DC, but working in at a public school teaching and then moving to a startup company. And so I was just curious, like how that transition was for you and what made you decide that staying in the government role was not the most effective place for you at the time? Yeah, I think of building a company now after I've learned all of these things at Columbia and have like really become, I think like Columbia really like prepares you to become a phenomenal business professional. And if I had been able to kind of implement a lot of these things, I would have done really different decisions in terms of the direction of my company. But I come from a line of entrepreneurs. Like my mom had a mortgage and construction company growing up and like created jobs in my community and was also the reason that I was able to go to college, right? So like that entrepreneurship seed was always there. And then I advocated for Latinx owned businesses. I think for me, that breaking point was identifying uh, an opportunity in the market. So I, one of the things that I noticed is there was no sophistication around the fundraising mechanisms that a lot of these private sector investments, political campaigns, and national nonprofits. And so I really was able to build or create a service and provide a product that I didn't see on the market. And then additionally, the, the differentiating factor for me was really having a strong Rolodex of clients and, and folks that I could tap for, for funding. At that point, I probably had access, and I still do, which has been one of the things that I, I really leverage is like I'm thinking about pivoting into venture. I have a Rolodex of like over 150 corporate partners, anywhere from like BP, Shell, Macy's to like Google that I could tap in and be like, hey, this is a phenomenal business investment. You should really consider tapping into to this opportunity. At the end of the day, I, I don't know, like thinking about starting a business again and after seeing all of the stats and how challenging it is, I am almost like, grateful that I went into it a little bit blind because I don't know if I would have had the courage to do it if I hadn't. Yeah. What kind of challenges did you experience when you did make that jump? 
it was terrifying. I don't have, I think a lot of, especially at Columbia, there's like many peers who maybe have a financial safety net through family or kind of other avenues. And that wasn't my reality. I still had a, a college education and I could go find a job if everything, if I failed miserably. But at the end of the day, I knew that anything I was eating, everything I killed, right? And as I started to grow the company, it was not just me, but also my team. It, every day was like terrifying, but also exhilarating <laughs> because you want to make sure that you meet payroll. You want to make sure that you're taking care of benefits. Uh, and then at the same time, trying to expand the company. So yeah, those, those were a couple of uh, different things, but it really made me, I think, more capital efficient. I think that I never grew the company without having kind of a pipeline of business that was going to pay for those expenses, which pros and cons, right? I think you've seen now that if you're ever able to leverage up, you're able to also potentially grow the company at a much faster rate. And I, I think that fundamentally came from like not having that safety net. And you see this a lot with minority owned and women owned companies is that they many times they are generating revenue before they go raise capital because their reality is just really different than um, other businesses that you've seen historically funded. What do you think is a solution to that in terms of helping minority owned companies scale faster, maybe even before they're, they're revenue generating? Like, what do you feel like is a solution to that? So I'll, I'll kind of give you this perspective. I'll talk about high growth businesses because there's different kinds of businesses. The kind of business that Elon Strategies was, we weren't looking for external capital, right? If we had been venture funded or backed, we wouldn't have been able to, to return that 10x uh, benchmark return that a lot of VCs look for. But for high growth businesses, one of the things that I've started to see is when you look at the different rounds of funding, you have your friends and family, your pre-seed, your seed, your series A. And so many times like you're going out to your friends and family and like, hey, dad, can you give me $20,000, $100,000? So I actually start validating this product or service in the market. And so what we have started to see is that you're starting to see these like friends and family rounds institutionalized. So you'll have the Development Corporation of Maryland is a phenomenal example led by who was previously led by a guy named Matt Conwell, who's now gone on to uh, raise Rare Breed Ventures, which is a phenomenal GP and investor. And his whole thing was like, black and brown folks don't have the ability to go ask their parents for these massive checks. Like, let's provide this first round, this first friends and family round so that they can actually have a product market fit and then start validating their solution. That's awesome. Yeah, I uh, recently took, I knew nothing about uh, VC before school and I took Angela Lee's class, just the intro to VC. And I always thought it's weird that there's literally a friends and family round kind of built into the sector uh, with no real explanation on how you get that money. <laughs> um, so that's really interesting that it's starting to become a little more in institutionalized. It seems really exciting. In terms of your interest in VC, it sounded like you came across that while owning your own business and seeing, to your point, this like arbitrage. How has your interest in VC grown? Where do you see yourself fitting into that market? So I think it was two things. Yeah, so definitely it was that market arbitrage, not seeing women and diverse owned businesses having access to capital, but two so as I was kind of on this journey of uh, like building my company, I sat on the board. I was 
recruited on uh, to the board of Stella Angels, which is an angel group based in San Diego and started by like a really smart investor named Sylvia Ma, whose father was like mega rich. He had like buku bucks kind of money. And like he believed that women could only have two roles in life, either be a, a home taker or a secretary. And so to honor his father, after he passed, he left her a ton of money. She started an angel fund investing in women-owned companies, which <laughs> was like to this day, like I love so much. And so a part of what her mission is to get more women of color into investing. And so she had a junior associate role on her board. And that's where I really started to learn about what angel investing, what early stage investing became kind of my passion. And so since my time at Columbia, I've spent a ton of time at different venture funds. I've worked at four different venture funds. I was at Citrine Angels, which invests in early stage women-owned companies, type one ventures, um, automation, deep tech, space tech, uh, was at Laconia Capital doing B2B SaaS businesses. And then most recently spent time at Primary Venture Partners, which is probably the premier seed stage VC in New York City. And was really lucky that my time at Primary spent with one of the founding GPs, this guy named Ben Sun, like still to this day, is like one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he really mentored me and invested in me. And so over the summer, um, I saw a ton of consumer and fintech deals and was just like fascinated by fintech because I think it was like a combination of like being in this like finance intensive kind of program at Columbia, as well as like New York City is actually the biggest fintech ecosystem in the world. And so then seeing this insane deal flow just became obsessed with it. And since then was really able to have been able to like deepen my understanding of fintech. And over the summer, I actually started a community called VC Unleashed, which is a community for BIPOC MBA aspiring investors. So as I was kind of navigating this journey, I was really lonely. Um, I know that we have the VC club at Columbia, but I have felt that it was a lot of the same kind of pattern matching that I saw in the industry. So I was able to build this community across the US that's now grown to over 400 people to support each other in terms of like actually building the technical knowledge to be really successful at these jobs, everything from like how to build an investment thesis to how to do VC math to like how to evaluate deals um, to then building a network of just like other peers as you're kind of navigating this process. And we have an advisory board of investors. We're having our first board of, board of directors meeting. And I think it was really to build an infrastructure so we can be successful because I think like you need to really see diversity on both sides of the cap table on, on the founder side, but also on the investor side. And so that was a big part of my process. And then during the time with VC Unleashed created something called the FinTech Breakdown Series, where we interviewed um, folks like Matteo Heffemeister from Andreessen Horowitz, who's now at leading all of uh, Growth for Jeeves, or Elliot Robinson, who's at Bessel Venture Partners, and just broke down FinTech in a way that wasn't terrifying, in a way that was like accessible, which is, I think, a big part of my personal mission. I mean, that's super impressive. And I think you have created this space for mentorship when you were also looking for a community. I think that's really cool. And you're clearly very entrepreneurial, like your mom, really carrying that spirit through everything that you're doing. What do you think is next for the VC industry? Um, and maybe you kind of already tapped a little bit into that, but just curious if you see any sort of like disruption or trends in your time working in VC. 
Yeah, um, I feel like I could answer that question in so many different ways. I, I'll tell you my hope. <laughs> I'll tell you my hope for the industry in general because I, I could like dive down into like investment thesis for the fintech space, which I'm like more knowledgeable on. But an example of this is so Bain Capital Crypto Fund announced their slate of investors this past week or week and a half. And so it's a $560 million fund, massive fund with a huge opportunity. And you see Web3, crypto, DeFi as, as an opportunity to rebuild kind of a financial ecosystem that is inclusive of all communities. And this slate of investors was all male. And so I think that's a massive missed opportunity. One, as women and people of color are really like over-indexing on using DeFi and Web3, and also have been a massive part of this like ecosystem building. And so my hope is as we are building this next generation of businesses, we are building these next generation of investments. We are inclusive of all different views and, and not, not only because it's, it's the right thing to do, but it's good for business. <laughs> and we've seen case study after case study after case study. And this stuff just doesn't happen overnight. I think a lot of what we have seen is you see a lot of like PR or marketing around how we're going to change. But like, I personally think some of the smartest people that I've had conversations with are VC investors. And they know in order to be successful, you need a plan of action. So my hope is as we are like building this next generation or this future is that we actually have like benchmarks where we can meet to actually create a pipeline in a different reality for what VC looks like in the future. I think that's a really good vision. Um, and I, I saw your TechCrunch article about Bain and just thought, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, and I think that article was like such a powerful representation. Like I am was able to pull together folks from the VC Unleashed community. And I'm also part of another community called SheFi, which is a community to educate more women and make us investors in the DeFi and crypto space. And like we brought together five women of color who are investors, operators, and community builders, and we mobilized. And from that, we were able to build out a really strong case of like, what, like how do you build an inclusive ecosystem? But yeah, we exist, like, and we've been existing, like just folks haven't given us the platform to amplify our voices. You, I guess the, my next thought is, how do you have time for all of this? For people who want to break into VC or even in general who want to go to business school, how do you find time to stay focused? Because I find that I get very distracted um, with other <laughs> things. And, you know, we do still have to go to school and things like that too. So um, how have you found your business school experience in balancing all of that? Yeah. So this is like, actually, I was having a conversation with some folks over like just this work happy hour this past week and they're like, yeah, I wanna take a two year break and just like do business school and just like vacation. And I think that there's like a misconception. I, I think that like, if you come from like certain backgrounds, certain social economic classes, like your experience might reflect that, but like, I'm tired. Like these last two years mm. have been nonstop grinding. Like I mentioned this earlier, but I'm the first in my family to go to college. My mom doesn't even know what Columbia is. <laughs> she like doesn't like fully understand like what I'm doing or like where I'm at mm. and even for me to be here is like girl I had to break so many like glass ceilings so many stereotypes like it, it has been 
a combination of hard work and a lot of luck and like mm. phenomenal mentorship. And it's really like throughout my whole time, I mentioned that I've been at four different venture funds. I've built this community of folks. I write a bunch, like just we published something on TechCrunch this past week. The week before that, I published an article on Forbes on open banking. Like it is deeply being focused and understanding like the mission that I'm here to accomplish. And business school for me was really a stepping stone to break into this space that is so elite and elusive. And I think like for folks who are looking to uh, looking at business school and also breaking into venture, like we belong in these places. If anything, I see it when I show up in class, how my perspective as an entrepreneur, as a woman, as a person of color, as a Latinx person, as an undocumented person, bring so much value to these conversations. And in order to have really profitable and successful businesses, you need a diversity of opinion and perspective. And breaking into VC is really hard. And that is not something to deter you, but you just have to have a different mindset. Because a lot of the folks who are in business school are either recruiting for consulting or investment banking. And you have a really terrible time during your first semester. And then you either find out if you moved forward or if you didn't. And then you just get to party, right? Like you get to just hang out. And that's not the case for folks in venture or anyone taking like a different path. No, I appreciate that perspective. Because yeah, I think oftentimes, yeah, there's the one narrative about business school that we hear about. And that's also kind of a goal of this podcast too, is to break that myth that there isn't one narrative about what it's like to go to business school and everyone has totally different experiences. And it's not just about, you know, the trips and the partying, although that's great, but there's also folks doing some really interesting stuff and really hustling to your point. And so I really appreciate you kind of bringing that to light. And yeah, going through recruiting while all the consultants and investment bankers were done was <laughs> real fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see, you see all of your classmates are like, okay, I'm done. I'm just going to chill. And I'm like, damn, I'm literally at the beginning of this process. And now right. I'm, I'm actively recruiting for full-time roles now. And even the recruiting process for a full-time VC role is such an ambiguous process in general. And it's, it's, it's already like so competitive. And like, mm -hmm. this is actually after like the, the three semesters and summer that I've been in business school, like this is actually where things really matter you just run hard until the, the like finish line. Yeah. You're like in the final hour here. Yeah. You got it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. At least in the past like year and a half. It's so funny. I was always trying to be very careful about COVID and you know, then when I saw people get COVID and they were like, okay, cool. I can do whatever I want now for the next three months. It like felt the same way when everyone got their like consulting and investment banking jobs. They're like, okay, now I'm good. I can do whatever. <laughs> I also like that's a really I, I think unique ex part of our experience right like totally. we went like our first year was fully remote and like you can build a relationship with someone through zoom and online but like it's so powerful to be in person with folks like now that we are back in the classroom I hate saying this but like people always have preconceived conceptions of folks and so like when you actually totally. get to meet people in person and like vibe with them and like just even like have an intellectual like spar it's so powerful to like actually building relationships with folks that are so different from you. Um, so I, I think we have like unique challenges on top of everything else. Yeah. We had that weird layer of 
everyone knew each other as like a zoom square for a really long time <laughs> and then you figured out people's heights you're like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> how have you thought about networking especially in a covid world and what advice would you have for anyone else who is trying to understand the networking game if you will there was like pros and cons of like living this zoom university um, and having kind of your MBA experience one you didn't have to like make the trek to class so you had more time to actually like intern or do other things especially for VC I think leveraging Twitter is such an important piece of this like I've met so many really cool people through Twitter and also through the VC Unleashed community have really built a global community through this right like this weekend I was at Wharton hanging out with one of my good friends who's like a first year VC who's like going to change the world um, that I met through the VC Unleashed community. Or at the same time, I met um, Nate Safayo, who is a, a founder and CEO of Portable, which is a, a digital identity play, who I met through Twitter, right? Like there's so many folks that I, I think a big part of it is like, you have to actually do the work and reach out. You're going to get 10 no's before you get your yes. But when you do, um, I think it'll be really worth it. And like, I think remembering people are, are human beings at the end of the day. And like, we're all kind of balancing challenging things and like just trying to show up and like survive this like hard pe period in history. And yeah, I agree. I think there was like a, everyone became a little more human the past couple of years. For sure. Um, we've been going through all this. So that's, maybe that'll make it easier going forward that everyone can remember that sentiment. Um, kind of switching gears, despite COVID, you were able to take a semester um, at London Business School. I would love to hear about your experience and what made you decide to, to do that. So outside of Columbia, the only other school that I wanted to apply to was LBS. Four years ago, I, I went to London for a wedding. I was a plus one to the fanciest wedding I've ever been to. And our hotel, our Airbnb was in front of LBS. And I said, one day I'll come back. And when I was kind of going through my application process, I took the GRE and not the GMAT. And at the time, LBS only was taking the GMAT. So I was like, no way. I'm going to retake another standardized test. Like, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> and so when this opportunity came up, I applied through the Chasen Center and I think was like one of the most life-changing parts of my experience through the MBA. And I, I also like was able to do it with my partner who I met at CBS, which was like really cool. I think like the MBA experience is just like such a unique experience that like even sharing with your friends and family, like, you can't fully. <laughs> and it was really awesome to just be in London. We lived um, off of Oxford Street, like in central London. We were like a 10 minute, 15 minute walk from LBS. And I think the education was also like so global. I think in the U.S. we forget that the rest of the world exists. So like all of our case studies are American businesses, but it was a phenomenal experience. And like outside of New York, London has the biggest fintech ecosystem. So during my time in London, I actually joined This Week in Fintech, which is a global fintech community. And I'm now the head of community for them. And so like in my time at LBS, I was really able to meet a ton of investors and founders and operators my experience in London was the reason I was able to publish this article on Forbes, really looking at fintech across the pond and doing a comparative analysis between the US and, and the UK's fintech ecosystems. And it was like so rewarding. I mean, I like loved the experience there. 
I, I like will forever cherish it. And I, I like anyone who's even thinking about studying abroad. I know a lot of folks are like afraid of the FOMO that you'll get. Like, oh, it's a semester of business school. I'll, I'll miss my friends. Like, people are always going to be here. <laughs> it's going to be the same parties. It's going to be the same things. And you'll come back in and plug in. And it really just opens your mind and like how global businesses work as well. Yeah, what was like a big difference you saw between CBS and LBS? Because they, uh, they've they're similar, but there I'm sure there are plenty of differences. Yeah, I, I like fundamentally do think that Columbia has a much better like finance program. I think that LBS is just an extremely global community. I think it, at Columbia you still have a really strong New York City finance kind of broy presence that like stays really strong in the culture. But I, I think LBS, because it's based in Europe, has just a really strong um, international student population. And then I think the other thing is like LBS has the best global private equity and venture program in the world. And so like my last class that I took at London Business School was this global private equity class. And it was life-changing. Like the content was so good. The professors were experienced operators who had been in the space for a really long time. And again, it was from a global perspective. So yeah, I think that was really cool too. That's awesome. I mean, super cool that you did that. I think, like I said, even given COVID, being able to go somewhere new and experience something totally different uh, must have been really unique. What, um, you know, we talked about how business school can be quite the hustle. Like, what are some things you do in your maybe little spare time? (laughs) Relax or enjoy um, or just, you know, decompress a bit. So I'm trying really hard to just like integrate joy in my day. Like uh, right now I'm taking this call on my rooftop and I have like lots of beautiful sun showing in and peeking in. Um, I am really trying to prioritize my mental and physical health. So like exercising more, um, making sure that I'm meeting with my therapist um, and also just like finding times where I can disconnect and like not talk about finance or not talk about um, like business or fintech. Um, I don't know, what am I watching right now? Like I'm watching Inventing Anna. That is like a mind blowing show. Um, right. Like just being able to veg out has been really awesome too. No, that's cool. Yeah. I think setting those priorities in your head helps. And I just wa- finished watching. So curious what your thoughts are, but there's this, <laughs> like, there's like a slew of these, uh, series that are coming out. They're all about fraudsters. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I find like the trend really interesting. And for whatever reason, I'm totally into it. Um, just <laughs> trying to figure out like how did people do, like fraud all these you know investors um, and the general public I think it's like really interesting I, and I feel like there's so much ickiness in that whole show being at Columbia being in New York especially like I think perception can become reality and it's so important but I don't want to prescribe to any of those things I, I, I struggle with it because I know that gone through these like paths to power classes or these like more softer skill classes at Columbia that are that teach us how to kind of navigate these spaces and they have an impact on your professional and personal career I I and maybe it's like me going back to this belief where you can like be good for communities and profitable and still be successful without having to prescribe to all of like this 
like fakeness that Mm. exists what do you think I think you're right I think there are these actions or mannerisms that create this perception that you're going to be successful and I almost wonder if like part of those things those myths are being kind of debunked a little bit um like everyone always looking to Facebook being like break things and you know move fast and it'll all work itself out and you'll be the next Facebook it's like well I don't know actually if that's the best guidance that we should be following (laughs) is just let's break a bunch of things and hopefully it works out and we become Facebook I don't know I'm curious if like this trend in companies that actually aren't even profitable will impact investors in some way and maybe make them have like a little bit more scrutiny or really like pay attention to actually like the numbers versus just like the show in front of them yeah, I think that, I mean, especially in like early stage VCs, a lot of the businesses are not profitable. You need a ton of capital to like hire a really strong engineering team or to just prove out that the solution works. One of the things that I feel like is really interesting is that there's so much posturing. I like was the CEO of Superhuman came to speak to one of the classes I TA for. And he was like talking about how he was lining up his Series A investor slate and how he like back-to-back stacked meetings from Graycroft, Andreessen, Bessemer. He literally made every single investor wait five minutes so they could make sure that they saw the investor before. And I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, so it's, I think it's like everyone has a different style. Um, and maybe that's what it takes to be successful now, but I kind of do want to break that. I think also something that I remember from that intro to VC class was, like this emphasis on investing in the leader. Cause to your point, like a lot of early stage companies, like maybe don't even have a product yet. And it's like an idea and they're just trying to get off the ground. And that capital is so necessary, you know, being profitable right away. Like we said earlier is actually really hard, but it's all about like investing in this person. I I, sometimes I'm like, there's so, there's so much subjectivity in that. I have a lot of friends um, in business school now who are like, I just could never do early stage investing because there's just so much risk. Like there's so many unknowns, but I, I think like the way to kind of think about it, like there's obviously a lot of other factors, but like, how do you invest in the person that you never want to bet against, regardless if there's a global pandemic, regardless if like they have supply chain issues, they're going to make it happen. That is kind of the person that you really always want to be on that team. And I, I think that's what exact one of the exact reasons why like women and people of color can be such phenomenal entrepreneurs because you have to be three X better in order to be mm. at the table, right? Like you have to have a different kind of grit. You have to have a different, you, and many times you have a different journey when you actually get to the table to an investor and like having those conversations around funding. No, that's interesting. That's a good, okay. Well, I eventually have to go to class now, but thank <laughs> I was going to say, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I think, you know, kind of to the point of, getting to know people in the pandemic like I remember when you and I first met and you were like instantly warm and connecting me to people and so I've kind of followed you along this way weirdly um just seeing how much you've done at school and I'm it's just really cool and exciting to see and you know you're gonna crush it in recruiting um, thank you yeah I'm like really happy that you're creating this space too I think it like this is give me CBS matters vibes where like you can come into it like in a very friendly way and just like understand people's pers- perspectives without having like any other kind of things intervening and you're just like you're telling a story so I'm, I'm grateful for you too thanks yeah I think trying to build a different kind of community
for joining this episode of Please Unmute Yourself. Interested in being a part of the podcast? Reach out to the podcast team on Instagram at Please Unmute Yourself or at Please Unmute Yourself at gmail.com. Stay tuned for future episodes and opportunities to learn more about the CBS community.